The following Knowledge at Warden podcast is brought to you by Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their financial goals. Visit Vanguard.com. Additional support for this podcast comes from Warden Executive Education. For more information on Warden's executive course, Strategic Persuasion, the Art and Science of Selling Ideas, please visit executiveeducation.warden.upenn.edu. Earlier this month, Cerberus Capital Management bought 80.1% of Chrysler Group from German automaker Daimler Chrysler, effectively ending a nine-year marriage between the two that never quite worked out. The expectations created by this are huge and revolve in part around Cerberus's ability to make a deal with the United Auto Workers Union that would include restructuring billions of dollars of retirement and health care benefits, a burden that both Ford and GM, but not Toyota, also carry. We asked Wharton Management Professor John Paul McDuffie, co-director of the International Motor Vehicle Program, to give his views about Chrysler, Cerberus, high gas prices, and other auto-related issues. John Paul, thanks for coming. Glad to be here. So we'll start out. Now that the dust has settled, what do you make of the Chrysler deal? Good news, bad news, and for whom? I think it's a a fascinating moment uh, in the history of the auto industry and uh, I suppose in the history of, of private equity as well. Certainly the first time something as big and complicated and iconic as uh, one of America's classic car companies has been purchased uh, by a private equity firm. And uh, I think there's a number of different ways it could go, and I'm, I'm sort of watching it very closely. We're used to private equity firms uh, by now, uh, at least stereotypically, uh, moving very quickly to just strip out all kinds of costs, maybe break things up, sell off assets in order to get a fast return and perhaps uh, resell the firm. Uh I think that's not going to be uh, such uh, a viable option for Cerberus, but uh, that may be the way that they're going to approach it. Private equity, of course, is supposed to have the advantage of taking uh, management out of the spotlight of uh, quarterly uh, profits uh, and industry analysts and and, uh, prying shareholder eyes, and that uh, hypothetically gives them a chance to take uh, slower, more patient routes to doing something to turn a company around. I would, uh, I would hope and I have some, I guess, optimism that some of the Cerberus team will have some creativity and imagination about how they approach uh, the Chrysler situation at this point in time. How soon do you think Cerberus can turn Chrysler around if they can at all? One of the big sources of cost uh, in this industry is, is supplied parts. And uh, so one notion would be that Cerberus would try to find all sorts of cost savings in, in that area. But frankly, all of the big auto companies have been uh, for years stripping cost out of the supply chain. Uh, the presence of competitors in places like China has certainly helped with that. I question how many uh, easy-to-get cost savings there are in those kinds of traditional places to go uh, with, with, with cost-cutting. Um, there's also an argument that the problems of, of Chrysler and also GM and Ford are less on the cost side than on the revenue side. They haven't been so successful in recent years at attracting customers to their new products. 
Um, so what does it take for Cerberus to uh, generate new products out of Chrysler that get people excited uh, while, of course, managing the cost side uh, very carefully? The, as you uh, mentioned in your intro, the, there are a lot of eyes on the UAW contract and all the costs involved with that. And um, I'm not one who holds the view that that's been the, the main thing saddling the big three uh, with burden, um, but it's an undeniable cost for them. And uh, GM and Ford have both already negotiated very sizable uh, reductions in their healthcare obligations to the UAW. Um, Chrysler was not successful in, uh, or Daimler Chrysler, in reaching a similar deal with the UAW. At the time, the UAW saw Daimler Chrysler as uh, financially the strongest of the three. Um, that has clearly changed. Uh, but I imagine in all of the run-up to the sale of Chrysler, uh, there's been a lot of thinking going on within Chrysler management, within uh, the UAW leadership, and of course within the new buyers at Cerberus about how to tackle this in the upcoming negotiations. Uh, many people are, are, are intrigued by something that has happened uh, recently at, at Goodyear, um, Goodyear, the United Rubber Workers, which are now part of the United Steel Workers, uh, and the company negotiated a deal where they set up a new health care fund that's managed by the union. And all the health care liabilities of, that, of, of the Good, Goodyear workers are transferred to that new fund. So the company no longer carries the health care liabilities. People are wondering if this could be a kind of creative uh, option to uh, the Chrysler UAW negotiations this summer would be a new approach. Cerberus might be in a good position to uh, kind of break the mold and go in that direction. Picking up on what you said a few moments ago, a columnist in the New York Times this week suggested that, in fact, the problem isn't the UAW, that wages and health and retirement benefits make up only about a tenth of the cost of an average car. He suggested the problem is that auto companies stopped making cars that Americans wanted to buy and drive. Is this a simplification, or do you think he has a point? Of course, it's a simplification, um, but it's uh, it's uh, it's an appealing uh, message in a number of ways. Uh, I think it's pretty easy to to uh, kind of blame the labor cost legacy um, for problems that have been growing for the the U.S. companies for for many years. the The real question about the healthcare and pension legacy costs is that that. $1,500 to $2,000 per vehicle, if you imagine that that could be invested in, uh, you know, putting more into the vehicle, better technology, better interior materials, uh, um, a little more work on uh, some of the styling, that that might make the difference in, in, in attractive vehicles. Uh, that's certainly possible, but I also think a piece of what we've seen was a result of sort of strategic choices by the U.S. companies in the 90s to get away from the car business, in a sense, and move into the truck and SUV business. It was a protected part of the market where there wasn't much foreign competition, uh, and these were hugely profitable vehicles. And as we know, the industry had a really good run with those vehicles, um, and nobody was complaining about them not building vehicles that that consumers wanted. The The sales seemed to... Uh, to demonstrate uh, that they were anticipating those needs very well. But I think, you know, it, it became a kind of addiction um, 
that was hard to break free of. And so these companies missed some really important new design trends. The, uh, the rise of car-based SUVs, of uh, SUVs built on car platforms. The Japanese companies had a four- to five-year head start on the U.S. companies in really getting viable products into the marketplace. That's been the largest growing segment in the, in the entire vehicle market. And then, of course, there's the bread-and-butter you know, passenger sedan, uh, which continue to be some of the largest selling vehicle segments. And the big three kind of turned away from that segment for years. Hard to step right back and compete against the Camry and the Accord and the Altima and some of these very strong core products, now the Hyundai Sonata, and, uh, and right away start gaining market share against those tough competitors when you've turned your back on that segment. So, and, and these design things are not things you turn around overnight. How likely is it that Chrysler would declare bankruptcy? Hmm. Um, well, I, I don't. I don't know enough about the inside of the financial situation. Uh, everybody seems to think Cerberus got a very good deal um, when they look at the purchase price uh, Daimler Benz paid for Chrysler in nineteen ninety seven ninety eight of thirty six billion, and then they look at the. Price of Cerberus paid more around six or seven billion. Of course, it's more complicated than that, and that was only for eighty percent of the equity. Um, I'm guessing that Cerberus would not have uh, wanted to make a deal like this just to then try to use the bankruptcy route as a way to, for example, dramatically reduce labor costs or break labor contracts. Um, there's been enough of that going on in the auto industry, and particularly among suppliers, um, for it not to be a you know, a crazy out of the question idea. Um, but, uh, I think, uh, in my view, and I think many, many share this view to take a major auto manufacturer into bankruptcy, um, potentially has very different consequences than taking a supplier into bankruptcy. All of the uncertainty that's raised about the future of that manufacturer, all of their products that are out there, uh, you know, needing to be serviced, um, all the people who've staked their business on the continuation of that company. It's very risky if you sort of take yourself out of the game for the period of going through a bankruptcy procedure. Um, a lot of people may just decide to stop supporting your entire aftermarket products uh, as well, not to mention your, your products going forward. So a clean start for a major auto manufacturer after bankruptcy is, I think, less viable than even for an airline. You know, And as we've seen, uh, that's been very common in the airline industry. How long do you think Chrysler's current management can stay in power, given that Cerberus, is, Cerberus itself has a number of former auto executives that, that they could put in at a moment's notice at, at, as head of Chrysler? I think it is a sign of perhaps the strength of the service offer that they went into it eyes open about uh, knowing about auto companies because of some of the uh, very senior people that they've attracted to their uh, to to these automotive acquisitions. Uh, David Thursfeld from from Ford was head of manufacturing there uh, in Ford of Europe for for many years. Um, and Bernhardt, uh, of course, worked at Daimler Chrysler for a number of years uh, before he was forced out and then worked at Volkswagen. So these are people with uh, a lot of knowledge, a lot of credibility. Um, everything I've read suggests that they don't actually want to step into active management at all. Um, and I don't think Cerberus would push them in there unless they felt something was going wrong. So I think a lot will depend on how much the Chrysler management team feels um, uh 
that they can buy into what Cerberus wants to do, um, that they're getting supported by Cerberus. Uh, certainly the CEO, Tom Lasorda, uh, looks to be uh, the kind of person with a lot of the right ideas, a lot of the right skills, and a lot of the right credibility. Um, you may have heard that he has an interesting family history, which includes uh, union, union leadership. And so uh, he seems to be one of the right people to, uh, to work closely with, with the union through this period. So I don't expect a big turnover in Chrysler management, but I did see uh, an announcement yesterday of some senior Chrysler person who's leaving. So we may see some of what we saw after Daimler-Benz bought Chrysler, which is a bunch of people deciding they're not sure they want to stay on under the new regime. High gasoline prices have been the subject of almost daily media reports. Are they high enough to make people cut back on their driving? And who's to blame? Um, you know, who's making money off of them? Ooh, complicated, uh, complicated question. Uh, you know, I, I think we're all kind of speculating when we imagine tipping points in gas price that suddenly cause um, behavior change. People used to say $3 was it. Because um, $3 was something, you know, hadn't been touched in years and years. Uh, we're starting to sit above $3, uh, you know, for a more extended period of time. And we've had the previous uh, flirt flirtation with prices this high. Um, so I think people uh, adjust and acclimate to these things in, in all sorts of ways. So they get used to things that used to outrage them, that's A, but they also start to change their behavior and they change things in small ways, uh, you know, a few uh, fewer trips or different decisions about uh, uh, maybe, maybe how far to drive on a, on a, on a, uh, on a holiday. Uh, and they eventually make different buying decisions about vehicles. Um, I know that sales of hybrids are exploding. Um, I mean, Prius, I think, particularly in some of the other newer hybrids. Uh, and there are more hybrid models being offered all the time. Small car sales, of course, are way up and truck and SUV sales are down. And um, eventually, I think we can anticipate that this uh, you know, situation of high gas prices helps encourage more innovation by the manufacturers to move more quickly to fuel-efficient vehicles. So you don't overnight get a suddenly a, a supply of, of vehicles that are going to change people's expenditures week by week on, on, on gasoline. The other question always is whether there ends up being any political consequences of how consumers feel about these things. I don't really see... Uh, at the moment, anything that adds up to a political action to try to do something uh, about gas prices. Um, you know, the, the oil companies are always very careful at times like this. Is they know they're making a lot of money, and they know people are suspicious and, and, and angry at them uh, often. Um, I, I suspect that one of the things that will, will start to be uh, part of the consumer perception of oil companies is how much they seem to be doing to help support the development of alternatives to petroleum-based products. Um, and I think there probably will be some that will uh, uh, will be more progressive in that area. And, and I think over time, that will have some consequences in how, uh, in how the public views them. But, but what is the incentive for them to be that progressive? <laughs> I mean, there would be, you know, certainly hurting their own profits if they came up with alternative sources uh, that don't involve their products. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think 
probably the incentive is is a long term one, and it's one of wanting to be in the game of other energy sources rather than being just trying to protect the the shrinking base of the old energy sources. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of political steam uh, mounting around uh, things like ethanol, which uh, not only is attracting a ton of investment money, but is getting subsidies from the government and the like. And um, they could choose to simply fight a rearguard action of, of trying to defend things that subsidize them or help them um, and to uh, resist the others, or they could try to find ways to, to be part of developing the new sources. You know, I, I think I'm just a believer that we're going to need a wide range of new fuel sources and new technologies in order to make any progress with some of these uh, challenges with, with greenhouse gases and, and environmental consequences. And, and that's going to mean a, a lot of room for innovation and experimentation. I don't see any one solutions or any one winner, certainly not in a technological sense, but I don't think even in a political or regulatory sense. Mm-hmm. Just, I, I read a, I mean, I heard a report on the news that profess to scientifically have um, discovered the exact price of gas that would be the tipping point for people. And they came up with a figure, I think it was $4.23 a gallon. <laughs> do you have a tipping point or do you think there is you know, a specific point when you think people are really just going to change their habits dramatically and not just incrementally or now and then? This must have been a, a U.S.-focused study yes. because, of course, gasoline oh, no, no, is already yes, definitely much more expensive than that in, yeah. in, in most parts of the world. Um, you know, I, I, I think looking at parts of the world where gas is very expensive, um, it's not that people don't drive. Uh, they tend to buy smaller, more fuel-efficient vehicles. Often that fits other aspects of where people live in terms of residential housing density and parking availability and, and, and the like. Um, I, I think maybe to me the more interesting uh, question is when people begin to internalize a sort of personal role in contributing to uh, – that, that they have a personal role in contributing either to the problem or to the solution. Um, so I think there can be a first response, which is, you know, I have my life the way I want it and my cost of living is going up because of these gas prices and that's outrageous. Um, and to get to the next stage, which is, well, things about my life may need to be reconsidered in light of the way the world is changing. Um, that could take people purely to dramatic changes in their driving behavior. It could take them to changes in how they think of, you know, how far away they live from where they work and so how long their commute is. And, um, you know, it could filter, I think, into a different people's consciousness in different ways. So I think the problem with the tipping point notion is it imagines that it uh, the price of gas instantly triggers reduction in the use of gas as the kind of direct link. And I think it'll be more, a little bit more diffuse. But I think it'll happen. Good. Okay. Well, thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.